Okay, well, I'm very aware that uh, I'm a little bit earlier than most of you in terms of the period I'm going to be talking about. In fact, I think I beat the, the closest historian by about 250 years. So um, on the one hand, that means I'm going to have to work extra hard, I think, to, to bring out the relevance of what I'm saying to uh, what campaigners and activists might be thinking about today. But also, um, I, I hope at least that I can maybe get away with a bit more because there's not going to be anyone to call me out. Um, we'll see. <laughs> So I'm going to be talking today about the problem of famine. Um, famine is a continuing problem today. Millions of people around the world live in non-democratic states where political leaders are essentially unaccountable. For example, according to the Democracy Index, more than half of the global population lives in regimes that are either authoritarian or, at best, hybrid where citizens have few rights and elections are rigged or non-existent. Unsurprisingly, it's in these non-democratic societies where health and the well-being of ordinary people is most neglected, often where environmental problems are most concentrated, and where uh, outright starvation remains a depressingly frequent event. Um, I've just given you a little map there of uh, the, the most recent report on the threat of famine in the world. And as uh, you are probably aware, most of the states where there's a threat of famine are also the ones where there is the least amount of democracy, however we decide to define that. So if we ever hope to live in a world where such gross injustices are a thing of the past, it seems sensible to turn to history for a bit of inspiration. Because over four centuries ago, at the end of the 16th century, the common people of England faced a situation in many ways similar to the, that faced by many of the global poor today. In the so-called golden age of Elizabeth, the majority of the population had no official voice in the political nation. They had no vote, they held no political office, and they had no formal voice in government, indeed, saying the wrong thing could get you hanged. Instead of enjoying the prestige of civil leadership or indeed the glories of the court, they were exposed to sharply rising food prices, collapsing employment prospects, and general immiseration. I'll get back to that in a few minutes. The climactic stress linked to the world's little ice age and the pressure on resources caused by a swiftly growing population led to ever more impoverishment and destitution amongst the Elizabethan poor. Yet within a few years, England had slipped the shadow of famine, as one important historian has put it. Although poverty and hardship certainly endured, indeed uh, endures today, the English never again experienced mass starvation that had blighted the country in the 16th century and would continue to affect its neighboring nations in Scotland, Ireland, uh, France, and the rest of Europe for many years to come. So how did this come about? There were, I suggest, three key preconditions to the end of famine in England. And I realize a couple of the things I say um, may sound like a little bit of neoliberal propaganda, but I can assure you I am a proper lefty historian. Um, I've, I've, uh, this is just what I can see in the evidence. So anyway, here, here I'll give it a go. So the first of these are long-term economic growth, 
The second are accessible food markets. And the third is the threat of unrest associated with short-term crisis. Together, these preconditions led to the creation of what's come to be known as the old poor law, the first in the world, as far as I can tell, the first statutory welfare system, uh, poor relief system, uh, that soon eliminated mass starvation. So let's start with long-term economic growth. Um, oh, right, there are the preconditions. Um, it really started in the cities. In the mid-16th century onwards, you had major growth in places like London, Norwich, Bristol, and vast increases in wealth in those areas, especially amongst merchants, traders, and the master artisans. And this, within a few decades, spread to the nation as a whole. Now, obviously, statistics from this period are a little bit questionable, um, but there have been historians who have been doing some very good work on this. Is, this is the, the latest numbers that we have. Um, basically, what you see is that in the 16th century, and especially from the mid-16th century, a shift from a long period of stagnation or contraction into a period of growth. There was simply more wealth around, starting in the cities and spreading across the country as a whole. So this was also a period of population growth, but even if we take account of per capita statistics, there still seems to have been a significant amount of, of uh, growth in, in what we might now call GDP. However, this economic growth was not spread evenly. Put simply, it was a period of intensifying inequality rather than growing equality. A range of factors led to prosperity being concentrated amongst the relatively well-off, quote, middling groups in society. So urban merchants and traders, which I just mentioned, did very well. In rural areas, it was um, the, what were called at the time the yeomen, the sort of middling farmers, the well-to-do farmers, who were able to produce a surplus of grain and benefit from rising prices. In other words, the group that we would now call the middle class had rapidly rising incomes. And this increasingly prosperous middle class became the ratepayers that we heard about this morning, the people who actually supplied the funds that were needed uh, for this poor relief system that I'll get to in a moment. They were wealthy enough suddenly to have enough disposable income to provide these funds, but they were also numerous enough to spread the burden more widely in a way that a, a punitive tax on, say, the, the super rich, the aristocracy, wouldn't have uh, been able to supply enough of a, a broad funding base. And this breadth of the new funding base also made it necessary to organize. You could no longer rely simply on informal personal charity private philanthropy, as we might now think of it. Instead, you had to have a formalized, organized method of taxation and redistribution. The second precondition I want to mention is the issue of markets. Um, so on the left there, you see a bunch of markets. Um, this is the, the current estimate of markets existing in 1516. There were a lot of them. Um, and this had been growing for some time by the early 16th century and increased dramatically in the late 16th century. 
Subsistence farming became increasingly rare. Instead, people were growing for the market. There was a surplus being produced by these rich farmers, and other people, rather than growing for themselves, were selling their labor. So there was an increasing growth of what we now call the proletariat as well. This meant that grain flowed increasingly easily around the country rather than remaining in the localities where it was grown to be consumed there. So long before the canals, the railroads, or even a proper road system, profit ensured that grain was being spread to the areas where it was in most demand and where the price was the highest. And this increasing amount of grain offered for sale rather than being directly consumed by the producer allowed markets to partly smooth out regional differences in supply and demand. This process became especially clear in 1623, the last famine in England, um, which was concentrated almost entirely in the Northwest, in places like Cumberland, and this happened basically because of a lack of markets. There was a physical shortage there. The sim grain simply couldn't get to those regions, and that was the last place in England to have uh, starvation on a sort of demographically measurable scale. Finally, short-term crisis and the threat of unrest. You see that nice big bump in the 1590s? That's what I'm talking about. This is when grain prices skyrocketed um, due to a series of failed harvests. Because simply having uh, more grain around and having more wealth around wasn't enough. It needed to get to the people that needed it, the poor. And the only reason why that happened is because of fear. The elites were afraid that the whole system would come crashing down. So in this crisis of the 1590s, when you had war, when you had um, harvest failures, what you also had is the emergence of the old poor law. Parliament passed an act in 1598 that set out that there would be overseers of the poor established in every parish, that these would raise local taxation, and that they would distribute it to the needy in order to prevent them from starving. And this happened because you had a spread of crime, you had vagrancy, and you had food riots. The first real wave of food riots in England came in the 1590s. There was even an abortive rebellion in Oxfordshire that anxious authorities put down with great severity. So that was the immediate cause that led to the passing of the old poor law. So to sum up then, uh, as quickly as I can, what you need are, the, for, are these three preconditions. And what that means, what that uh, looks, at, uh, looks like in practice is that with economic growth comes surplus, that is enough to actually make sure that it could um, supply the physical needs of everyone who, who needed food. Second, with accessible markets, you get availability, that is, it could get to the places where it was needed. And third, you had massive redistribution of wealth, which allowed people who actually needed it to buy it. In other words, it wasn't simply the new poor law being passed by um, beneficent elites uh, to help the, the poor. It was, in fact, to some degree, pressure from below, even before democracy, the fear of crime, the fear of protest that allowed this new system to emerge. Thank you.